0: Well, good morning, Meadowcroft. It's it's great to be joining you this morning. My name's Jonathan Hatt, as you already heard. I've been working with Pastor Will Stern. We actually have just recently moved to Media, Pennsylvania. Uh, Joined forces with Crosspoint down the street, but I'm very thankful to be joining you all. If you turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you have a Pew Bible, it is on page 774, and it will also be on the screen as we read. Before we begin, I ask that you would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that your word is God-breathed. It is profitable for all of us. It is profitable to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness, so that we may be complete this morning, equipped for every good work. So Father, I pray that you would use this time to build us up through your Son, Jesus' holy name. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Jonah, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. and three nights. What's your picture of an Old Testament prophet? Perhaps it's their background. You think of someone, someone like Amos, who once said of himself, I was not a prophet. I was not the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore figs. Or maybe. Maybe you think of their imagery. You think of someone like Ezekiel, who, if we did a sermon series going through the grotesque and graphic images he uses of idolatry and what it means to the Lord, you might start getting a little uncomfortable. Or maybe, maybe it's just their emotions. It's someone like Jeremiah who the disciples themselves compare Jesus to. That Jeremiah is often depicted as weeping; he is wailing over his beloved city Jerusalem and her destruction. Or maybe it's maybe it's just that they all have this similar way of talking. They have, as Martin Luther once said, a queer way of talking. They ramble from one point to another because they actually come from the same office that Moses established in the book of Deuteronomy. Or most likely, since we have just heard his story, you're probably thinking about Jonah, who is depicted as a bigot. He's petty. He's vindictive. He's angry against God, And everyone around him. For a time together, that's actually God's prophet. He's so simple, you may have remembered this years ago. VeggieTales was able to make a movie about him. He's so well known that if we were to go to Westchester University together and ask students random questions about the Bible and They happen to know random facts about the Bible. Usually, one of them is there's someone named Jesus. We can agree on that. Second one is probably going to be, at some point, somewhere, I think someone gets eaten by a fish. So what's so popular about Jonah? Why is it that most of us have heard this story again and again and again? Why is it we always seem to come back to Jonah. For a time this morning, Jonah serves us as a case study. He's a warning for all of us, if you will, of the extent in which we fall when we seek to flee God and his commands. If You want a question to be running through your minds As you are listening to God's word from Jonah chapter 1, here is the question this chapter asks all of us. What is my response when God speaks to me? Again, the question that should be running through all of our minds as we are listening to the story of Jonah is this. What is my response when God speaks to me? We see how God's prophet responds. It's a very simple and straightforward story. I would encourage you to follow along with me. In verse 1, how does the story start? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and God gives Jonah three commands. Three commands you're going to hear again and again and again. What are they in verse 2? To arise, to go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it to get up, go to Nineveh, preach against them. It's Very simple, straightforward. Even even if Jonah is skeptical, if he's a cynic about this, God gives him a reason in verse 2, because why does he tell him to go? He says, Jonah, their evil has come up before me. It's important for us not to read the story of jonah in a vacuum especially because we are reading the old testament here even god just name dropping nineveh should be enough for us to pause and reflect we we need to get into the mind of why nineveh because you may be asking yourself who are the ninevites well nineveh was the capital of the assyrian empire that just begs the question because now we ask ourselves who are the assyrians according to 2 Kings 17, Assyria was the empire that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. You know your Old Testament. That's actually Jonah's people. Going beyond this, let's take a step back from the Old Testament. Let's consider ancient Near Eastern literature. If we were to read it, the Assyrians were infamous for taking POWs, chopping off their right hands so they could not fight in war, gouging out their eyes... So they could not use bows. They were brutal in what they did to people that they dominated. They subjugated, even going beyond just what they did in military war. You may know what the New Testament tells us. Because as they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, foreigners began to come into the land of Samaria. And as foreigners came into the land of Samaria, the people that remained began to intermarry with the foreigners. They began to have children with the foreigners and the children had children before you know it by the time we get to the new testament we have a whole separate people group that we are very well aware of that jesus spoke about the samaritans these would have been the most wicked most heinous people on the face of the earth and that's the demographic jonah is being sent to even going beyond just their wickedness, this would have been a death sentence for Jonah. We can contemporize the story for a moment. This would have been the equivalent of Martin Luther King Jr. going by himself at the height of Jim Crow laws to a Klan rally and preaching against all of them. Jonah being sent to Nineveh would most likely lead to his death. So because that is true, you, you can probably understand why Jonah just might want to run in verse 3. You, you can understand the response of verse 3 because, look, he does rise. He follows the first command perfectly well. But what does he do? He arose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Just to give you an idea geographically, Nineveh is about 500 miles from Israel, where Jonah would have been located. Tarshish is 2,500 miles from Israel, and in the complete opposite direction. Jonah is making it abundantly clear. He wants to have nothing to do with this message. In fact, it even goes to great lengths in verse 3. He doesn't just arise to go to Tarshish. What does he do? He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He pays the fare, goes down into the, just to get away from the Lord's presence. And at this point, we as good students of the Bible may be hearing that and saying, Jonah, that's asinine. That's moronic. That is stupid. Don't you know there is nowhere you can go to escape the presence of the Lord? Haven't you read the Heidelberg Catechism? Haven't you read John Calvin? Haven't you read your own Old Testament to know God is infinite? He's immense. He's sovereign over creation. There is nowhere you're going to escape God's presence. And yet, how often do we say to ourselves, No one heard what I just said? I'm a faithful attender of Meadowcroft Presbyterian Church. It doesn't matter how I behave at home behind closed doors. So long as I don't hurt anyone's feelings, there's no real harm done. How often do we practically have the same mindset of Jonah, thinking that there is some square inch in our life that we can run from God's presence, even go beyond this, because you may be judgmental of Jonah and saying, Jonah, don't you know when God gives you a call, you are to respond in obedience? It doesn't matter who that demographic is, but who are the Ninevites in your life? Who are the people you would go to the ends of the earth to escape? Who are the people you've chalked up to as wicked, as heinous, but they're not my problem? Maybe it's not even that they're wicked and heinous. You just don't really jive well with the Ninevites in your, well, your life. your are Your hand's not in danger. Your eyes aren't in danger. It's not even that your life is in danger. You just don't really like the Ninevites in your life. Because to one degree or another, I think all of us can sympathize with Jonah here, where we all have Ninevites in our life who are wicked, they may be heinous. It's not my problem. What's so great about the story of Jonah, though, is... He does everything he possibly can to escape God's presence in verse 3. What happens immediately? He might be trying to escape the presence of the Lord, but in verse 4, it is the Lord who hurled a great wind upon the sea. He is right there, never leaving Jonah, reminding him of those commands to arise, to go to Nineveh, to preach against them. Jonah would actually see that storm, the mighty tempest upon the sea, and he would most likely hear our call to worship, Psalm 139. You'd be thinking particularly of those words, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee your presence? If I send up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And for us, We take great comfort in those words. We are called into worship this morning from those words. This may even be your favorite song, knowing that no matter where you run, God is right there with you, always right beside you, will never leave you nor forsake you. When Jonah sees God hurl that storm upon the sea, he would know that storm's from God. He also knows who he is, because he is The disobedient prophet. And that storm is not a sign and promise of God's protection. It's actually an indication of God's ire and indignation. If anything, this is a sign of God's judgment for for Jonah trying to flee the commands. Later in the story, him going down to the bottom of that ship to sleep, it's not him taking a cat nap to sleep off the storm. He knows that storm is from God, And he's doing everything he can to be the very first person to die on that ship. He could care less about what happens to the Gentile sailors. He could care less about God trying to wake him up from his slumber. In fact, it is only when the sailors themselves come, rebuke Jonah for sleeping at a time like this. It's only when they cast lots and force Jonah to reveal his identity, It's only when they are the ones fearing him fleeing from God's commands, it's only when he has no other option that he reluctantly gives his life, throws himself overboard to pacify God, to protect these sailors. For our time this morning, everything we have seen so far, our prophet is responding abysmally to God and his commands. What is my response when God speaks to me? Well, we've seen how Jonah responds, but you've heard the story. You know Jonah chapter one very well. Jonah's not the only person in this chapter because who else is responding to God? What did Jonah do, but what are the Gentile sailors doing in chapter one? Well, When the storm comes, in verse 5, it is the mariners that are afraid. It is the mariners that are hurling cargo over the ship. They're crying out to every god they know because they know this storm is from God, or at least it is divine. It's supernatural. It cannot be a natural occurrence, and they're doing everything they can to pacify this deity. Even beyond this, Look at what the chief sailor says to Jonah when Jonah is sleeping. He is the one to rebuke the prophet, but look closely. When he tells him to arise, call out to your God, what is that actually but God's commands? Back in verse 2, to arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it. It's actually the Gentiles bringing... And reminding Jonah of those three commands, of God using pagan sailors to remind Jonah there is nowhere he can go to escape those commands. Even take a step beyond this. Even when they are trying everything they do to save Jonah, they try to row back to save his life. And when they realize there is no other option, what do they do at the end of their story? What is their prayer to Yahweh? they actually begin to sound like good students of the Bible. They sound like they can enroll in Westminster Theological Seminary next week because of their prayer. Because what do they say? O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. By the end of our story, who are the people fearing Yahweh? Who are the people vowing to him? Who are the ones offering sacrifices to God? Isn't this just a lesson, even for us today, of how often God is willing to use people outside his church to teach us, the church, a lesson? God using these pagan sailors to remind Jonah of these commands. Because illustrate this for a moment. Think, it's been a couple years now, but think of the infamous apologist, Ravi Zacharias, who it came out after he died, his treatment of countless of women over and over for decades and decades. And sadly, it wasn't the church that was sounding alarms about Ravi. It was actually... A hardened atheist who had a blog post, keeping track of every financial transaction, every way his story was not lining up, every countless example of women after women giving their testimony of what Ravi was doing. God is perfectly willing to use people outside the church to teach the church a lesson. Ask that question again. What is my response when God speaks to me? Well, we see two different people in Jonah chapter one, and they're responding to God in radically different ways. But the irony of this chapter, the thrust of Jonah chapter one for all believers this morning, is this as Christians. You are to respond to God not like the prophet, but like those Gentiles. Isn't it ironic that the only people that seem to get who God is in the entire book of Jonah are Gentiles? Because what happens when Jonah does show up to Nineveh? In chapter three, you may know the story, Jonah gives about five words, the shortest sermon. Ever, and the entire city of Nineveh repents. The king himself, even the animals, are in sackcloth and ash. What is the prophet doing in chapter 4? He's whining, he's complaining, he's in a desert, he's by himself demanding divine justice on every single one of those Ninevites. Because who are the Ninevites in our life? Who are the people that we ghost, we plan our schedule around, we do everything we possibly can to minimize the Ninevite in my life? It's Not that I hate the Ninevite. I just don't really like the Ninevite. The Ninevite makes me uncomfortable. The Ninevite doesn't connect well with who I am as a person. Send someone else to the Ninevite in my life. Or maybe, maybe it is just outright hatred of someone in your life. Maybe it's not just that you don't want to hang out with the Ninevite in your life. Maybe who is the person in your life who you look forward to God's judgment? And it's not out of zeal for God's character. It's not to defend his holiness and his justice in this world. It's because you cannot stand what that Ninevite did to you in your life, and if there is any such thing as justice in this world. There's no way they could find the grace and the mercy of God. And what we see in Jonah chapter 1 through 4, the entire book, is that the most wicked, the most heinous people, regardless of their testimony and regardless of what they have done, are perfectly able we find the same grace and the same mercy. It is actually our call, regardless of whoever it is in our life, to go to those Ninevites with this same message of mercy and grace. The first point from Jonah, to ask ourselves who the Ninevites are in our life, but second, again, ask, look at Jonah as a case study for ourselves. If you look back at the opening verses, when Jonah first flees God's commands in verse 3, it simply says that he goes down. And occasionally, it might obscure this in the English, but it goes on to say he goes down and down and down about seven more times till he actually finds himself in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6, where he is at the roots of the mountain. He, is, he went down to the gates of Sheol and death itself. He is self-destructing his life to do everything he possibly can to escape God and his commands. And he even makes it abundantly clear why he ran. It was not out of fear for his life. It's actually out of fear for who God is, because just turn, look at the next page over in chapter 4, What does Jonah say to God directly when the whole city of Nineveh repents? He prays right to the Lord in verse 2 of chapter 4 and says, O Lord, is is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, and it's not because he was afraid to die, because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. His greatest fear in the entire book is that the Ninevites might actually respond to this message. They might repent. They might turn to the Lord. And that terrified Jonah because of everything the Ninevites ever did to his entire family, to all of his people, probably to him directly. The very last people he wanted to help find Jesus, was his greatest mortal enemy, and he will do everything, he will destroy his life just to escape this one command. When we seek to follow Jonah, this prophet, to emulate his example in our own life, when we hear God's Spirit speaking to us through his word, when we think of those idols in our own hearts that we cherish, we hold on to, we hope and pray that God would never ask to remove that one thing. We just keep pushing that voice down and down and down. So often we will find ourselves in the same exact position as Jonah himself, where we are angry, we are embittered, and we are even against the very God we claim to worship. But finally, and to conclude the story of Jonah, this story leaves us needing a better prophet. Because you know how the story ends. In chapter 1, Jonah throws himself overboard, and he probably thinks the story is going to be ending here. That it's a cautionary tale, don't flee God's commands, this is where it ends up. That his story is going to end in chapter 1, hoping he will die here. God essentially says, Jonah, you may keep trying to escape these three commands. I have not forgotten your mission to get up, to go to Nineveh, and to preach against every single one of them. It's because of that we see what is perhaps the most famous verse in this entire book. Verse 17, that is the Lord that appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And I would actually encourage you to turn to the New Testament, to our scripture reading, to Matthew chapter 12, particularly verse 39. We heard it read already. Jesus is in the midst of his public ministry. He is speaking to the religious leadership. And they essentially come to Jesus and ask for a sign. Ask Jesus, show us, prove it, prove that you are this messianic king that we have been expecting and we will be the first to worship you. We will be the first to bring this message to all of Jerusalem to all of Israel. What does Jesus do in Matthew chapter 12? Beginning in verse 39, Jesus doesn't give them a sign. Jesus reminds them of a story. Because Jesus' response in verse 39 is this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet jonah for just as jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth jonah fails as a preacher of repentance jesus opens his public ministry with, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jonah fled the wicked Ninevites. Jesus publicly confronted the wicked religious leadership to their face, saying, those Ninevites are going to condemn you in the final judgment. If You know your Old Testament well. Nineveh actually only receives temporary reprieve from God's wrath because two books later in Nahum, They're obliterated from the face of the earth. Jesus, because of his death and resurrection at the cross, has finally and climactically paid the sins of sinners forever. Jesus has made it his life's work to be this prophet that brings repentance to sinners. He is the greater Jonah, who would never flee the wicked Ninevites, but continually come to them, come to wicked, disobedient people like ourselves, and offer this message of forgiveness. And no matter where you find yourselves today, you may feel like you are just like the Ninevites, That your testimony is filled with the most wicked and most heinous actions imaginable. Or you may feel just like that prophet Jonah, whose continual testimony is disobeying God again and again and again. Or most likely, you're probably somewhere in between those two extremes. Jesus is the Messiah and savior for the most wicked of Ninevites and the most disobedient of prophets. Because actually think about what happens in Jonah. If it was up to Jonah, if it was based on his own ability to bring this message, it probably would have failed. But even though he was the worst missionary in the history of the church... Think about that for a moment. What did we say happens in the book? The entire ship comes to Jesus. The entire city of Nineveh repents. Because Jonah worships a God who loves to give this mercy. As we said, he is the one that responds to true repentance with forgiveness. He is the God who longs to relent from this disaster. And for us today, the hope we have as Christians is, regardless of our past, regardless of our obedience, because the message has nothing to do with us but that greater Jonah Jesus, we actually have a message worth bringing to everyone in this world. So to close... What is your picture of an Old Testament prophet? It may sometimes look like Jonah, who fails again and again to follow God's commands. It may often look like ourselves and the picture of the Christian life, of how we feel so characterized by that failure. But the hope we have of Jonah and every Old Testament prophet is they are pointing us to the premier example of a prophet who gives this message and was willing to give his own life so then the most wicked of people, like ourselves, could find forgiveness at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, you sent us the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man, one who throughout his ministry was going to the most wicked, the most rejected in society, and offering them this mercy, this grace. Father, we thank you that the gospel has nothing to do with our own obedience, but the obedience of your Son Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life, died the death that we deserve. And because of it, no matter who we are today, we know that you will relent from the disaster of our own sin, that you will extend your grace and your mercy to all sinners that come looking for it. We pray this in your son Jesus' holy name.